Hey, you listen to podcasts. Can I assume you like audiobooks as well? And if so, can I please hope you're not a member of Audible.com yet? I've been a member for over 10 years, and now I've joined their affiliates program, which means you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial and support Bionic Planet by going to audibletrial.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's Bionic Planet is one word with no dots, dashes, or spaces because the system doesn't seem to accept those. And you can support me by signing up and checking out their services. It might even work if you're a member. I don't think it does, but give it a try. They've got over 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. This isn't the way I expected 2017 to play out when I launched the Bionic Planet podcast in 2016. The idea was to focus on workable solutions to the climate challenge. And in 2017, those workable solutions required working around rather than with the U.S. federal government. Protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. Welcome to our 2017 Year in Review. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it, and nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields, and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. An impact that cost us more than $306 billion in 2017, according to reinsurance giant Swiss Re. Today, we revisit some of our more popular stories from this past year as we gear up for what promises to be a challenging and, I hope, progressive year ahead. Listening back to the pieces I posted this year, it struck me how many of them were built on history. It's not the way I planned it. But it makes sense, given that nothing happening now will make sense if you don't know what led to it. So as I looked for snippets to extract for today's show, I focused on those elements that offered some historical context. As a result, this 2017 retrospective is more a retrospective of the last 20 years than of this year just finished. But we start with a look forward, because within hours of the 2016 U.S. presidential election, I'd posted a story on Ecosystem Marketplace that I'm still proud of. It's called, Can U.S. States, the Private Sector, and the International Community Fix the Climate Despite Trump Election? 
It's amazing to me how accurate that piece turned out to be in its projections, because cities, states, and companies have begun stepping up on climate, although they're not doing nearly enough to get us out of this mess. One of the people I spoke to in the hours after the election was Mike Korczynski, who runs the private conservation group Wildlife Works. Here's a snippet from our lunch conversation in Marrakesh, Morocco, on November 9th, 2016. Clearly, the risk is in the fragility of the Paris Agreement participation. The Paris Agreement itself is ratified and will survive this uh, political change, but whether the U.S. will continue to participate in the Paris Agreement is now clearly a question of the day for people at this conference. There has been a lot of growing awareness within the American corporate landscape as to the importance of climate change, and the fact that there's a new president who's not going to hammer them isn't going to change their commitment because most of that commitment has been rational and not ideological. So I think that there's one scenario that says the action goes to the private sector in the U.S., not everywhere else, of course. We're just talking about the rest of the U.S. Another scenario is it goes to the states, as you pointed out. And then the third scenario is it, it gets clobbered uh, and, uh, and discouraged, in which case all the innovation that is happening in the U.S. in climate will find a place to employ itself elsewhere. We're going to have clearly two paths in the corporate world, right? The path that won't do anything until they're required to do it. And clearly they, they just got to get out of jail free pass at the federal level for the next four years, right? Then you've got the group that was doing it because they've or, they finally realized it's in the best interest of their business to do it. And that's most of the supply chain folks who legitimately acknowledge that the consumer sentiment, if you want to say, and the market sentiment is you better be a good citizen regarding climate. I think that activity will continue, I hope, and I think that activity will have to move beyond rhetoric and become much more transparent and uh, and have much more integrity in reporting. And I think that's important because ultimately, again, those companies, they're not moving because they think it looks like the right thing to do. They're moving because they think it is necessary for the future success of their business. And therefore, if they're reporting nonsense, they're hurting their business. And so I think that you take that logic through, they're going to want to fix that and they're going to want to have a system that they can rely on. Evo de Boer presided over the climate talks from 2006 through 2010 as executive secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. He pointed out that cities and states would step up to at least partially fill the gap left by Washington. A lot of American cities have been extremely active on sustainability, on climate change, and they will continue to do that. A lot of states have been very active on climate action, on renewables, and they will continue um, to do that. The private sector must be engaged in the climate fight if we're to win it. The question is whether companies are brought in by hook or by crook, by carrot or by stick. 
Are they dragged in, lured in, or do they lead? When it comes to ending deforestation, a handful of companies like Unilever and Mars and Kellogg's and Marks and Spencer have taken pains to restructure their supply chains. Other companies are following their lead, but others are just paying lip service. Well, the constituents and the private sector operate according to market imperatives. And the situation in many parts of the world is that renewables are already cheaper than coal and fossil fuel technology. Because of the huge advances that we've seen in renewable energy technology uh, and because of the costs that have come down as a result. So the marketplace is shifting almost irrespective of the politics. I also ran into Anthony Hobley, who runs the Carbon Tracker Initiative, which helps investors put a price on climate risk in general and fossil fuel risk in particular, as well as Christian Devali, who runs Elthelia Ecosphere, which invests in sustainable agriculture programs. We're seeing a determination from major economies like China to push forward with this, this clean energy revolution. Climate finance and impact investing did not start the day that Barack Obama took office uh, in 2008. It preceded it by quite a long shot and the wrong policy signal or the wrong leadership signal or the absence of leadership um, from a capital as important as Washington DC, of course it's going to have an impact in terms of the, the timing around which you know things continue to develop. But uh, China has put a ship in motion that is not turning around and it's it's and, and they're and they are investing in environmental security for national security reasons. They're not going to put their future on the line uh, knowing full well the physical realities associated with climate change just because um, American or, or British voters have made, shall we say, um, an unusual or um, a curious decision. If 10 years ago you had made a list of the top 10 sustainability-related technology providers worldwide, probably six out of the 10 would have been American companies. If you make the same list today, maybe one or two are part of the top 10. So if you want to make America great again, then put it back into the top 10, including in the area which is clearly about the future and about putting our, our prosperity, not just our planet, not just our people, but our prosperity on a, on a much more positive path. So, the broader U.S. economy has a lot to lose if the Trump administration backslides on climate change. But will the administration pay attention to the broader economy, or will it cuddle up with a few old-school fossil fuel companies? Only time will tell. But there are still two more interrelated elements to this mosaic, national security and international relations. We know that climate change is, is contributing to instability all over the world, to include Arab Spring and the Syrian conflict. Uh, we know that climate change is contributing to all kinds of instability all over the world, and it's, and, it's make, and it's getting worse. It's getting much worse. That's retired Brigadier General Stephen Cheney, formerly of the United States Marine Corps, 
now head of the American Security Project. Our own bases and stations here in the United States and several overseas are literally going underwater. So from the military perspective, the senior military folks understand the impact of climate change. And it's not just in the United States. Over 70 percent of the countries in the world have written climate change into the national security strategy. So uh, just about everybody's on board with this. We just have to make sure we can convince the Trump administration. I mostly tried to avoid the Trump show in 2017 because I feel his antics distract from the good work that so many people are doing to fix the mess. People like Toby Gardner, a research fellow from the Stockholm Environment Institute who spearheaded something called TRACE, that's T-R-A-S-E. It's an incredible tool that we can use to track shipments of soybeans, which are a leading driver of deforestation through 320,000 supply threads, going from individual municipalities in Brazil through local brokers to importers in countries around the world. With Trace, you can see which companies are buying soybeans from municipalities where farmers are chopping forests to grow them, and companies can see too. It's a tool that good companies can use to reduce their impact on forests and that watchdogs can use to keep bad companies honest. Now, when you open it up, what you see here, you've got a map of Brazil on the left, and then you've got uh, four pillars, and then between the pillars you have these kind of giant bands with little strings around them is kind of how I would describe that. And then as you, as you, as you roll the cursor over it, the little within those big massive bands, other ba- the band that you're touching, it, it, it kind of lights up, right? What's, what's happening here? So here, for example, it's, it's easier if we, uh, if we zoom in a bit and reduce the complexity. So if we ask about the soy that Bungie trades, one of the world's largest soy traders, to Spain. So you clicked on Spain on the so far right. I clicked on Spain on the far right. And on the far left, I've got the municipalities. So there's one municipality here called Primavera, which in okay. Portuguese is spring. And then we can see what we can see now is one supply chain thread wow, that okay. traces its way from Primavera in the south uh, west of Brazil via Bungi, via an importer, uh, and into Spain. So if okay. I click on Primavera, then I can start to learn about this actual place here. Okay, let me just because what was really neat there, you when you first when you clicked on Spain, you had one solid band coming from the upper upper part of the uh, right. the pillar. And then when you clicked on Primavera, then it became just a little tiny thread, and it weaves its way. It goes from from uh, Primavera, way at the top of the pillar. Then the middle pillar is Bungie, and then in the middle, you it looks does it come an importer that we don't know the identity of at, at the moment. Okay, and then ends up in Spain, and you can do that for you can do that for any any thread you like. And what what to give you a real impression of the entire complexity of the supply chain on the top right. You can change the view between a summary view that t- shows you the entire trade, mm-hmm. and then we've also got this complete view, which exposes 320,000 individual unique supply chain pathways Whoa. between all <laughs> 2,000 municipalities in Brazil that produce soy and all of the countries around the world that, that, uh, that, that consume it. So and you clicked on, what did you click on for that? I clicked on the top here on the change view to complete view. Gotcha, okay. Wow. And then you can type in anything you want. So, so where it's a search for? So it's a search for here in the, in, in, the, in the top of the screen. And we're here in Morocco at the COP, so we can type in Morocco as a country and click on Morocco. And the whole platform will reconfigure mm. to just show all of the soy that comes into Morocco. Wow. Okay. So what you, you, now what you have is 
On the right side, you have the pillar that's Morocco. Then in the middle, you have a pillar that uh, is unknown customer. That's someone you haven't identified yet. That's a, a trader. That's an importer into Morocco, yeah. And then it starts to get complicated. You have all these different waves, and you've got all these different companies in that one pillar. You've got Bungie is one of many. And then on the far left, you've got uh, all the municipalities of Brazil up on top. And then you've got, what's other? Is that So other, that's, that, that represents all of the other municipalities that, are, that, are, that can't be fitted into the screen. Okay. But you can, you can explode them uh, and look at them in more detail. Um, but what we've got here is the, uh, it just shows you the top ones. So these mm -hmm. are stacked. So Jatai is the municipality in Brazil that produces the most... Uh, soy that's exported into Morocco okay. and if we were to click on it mm -hmm. then we can look at the single thread for Jatay wow, and okay. then you can see where it is on the map on the left in Brazil and you can find okay. stuff about it. Okay, so this is really neat. So when you, when you click on that what happens, you click on uh, Jatay and then the, the thread that opens up, it looks like every all soy from that municipality goes through one company which Comigo. is Comigo then it comes to an importer. We don't know the identity of that yet. And then it comes into Morocco. But as you click on that, it lights up on the map. So we actually see where this municipality is. And we see where it is, but we're not just that. We can also learn about this place. So in the map, if we click on this little stacked square symbol, that will open ah. up the different uh, data layers that we have about Brazil. So we can click on data layers. We can look at a map of where the soy is produced. Darker areas is more soy, lighter areas less soy. And we can cross that, for example, with a map of where the deforestation is. So then if you've got dark blues are the soy and, and reds, light to dark reds are the deforestation, and then dark brown here is the combination of dark blue and dark red. And we can see, for example, that Jatay um, is down here. It's in a, an area that's quite high deforestation as it happens and also quite high soy production. And we can dig in deeper than we can by just looking at the map by going to the, the view more option here next to Jatai, which will open up what we're calling a fact sheet. Quite simple at the moment, but it tells us about this particular place. It tells us how large it is. It's quite small. It tells us um, how much agricultural land there is. And it tells us about how much deforestation there is related to soy. It says that there was a huge area affected by fire. Uh, in that municipality. And it also tells us about the companies that are trading from, from Jatay, and it breaks it down. And we, then, we can then click through and find out more about those companies. Wow, okay. So now, so now so what, you've, what you've shown us here is you've shown us where it comes from, you've shown us which companies are active there, and you've also shown us how high the deforestation rate is there. That's right. What, and what can we do with this, with this knowledge? So we can do many things with this knowledge. And one of the things that, depending on who the user is, if you're a company, then you can immediately start to filter the complexity of your supply chain and understand what are the places, where are the places uh, that you're sourcing soy from, for example, in this case. And if you've made a commitment to clean up your supply chain, then you can use that information to identify the areas that are at greater risk of deforestation and those that are not. And of course, the solution is not for that company to just move to the areas uh, that have no deforestation because their contribution to solving the problem um, would, then, would then not be evident, but instead to, to use the information that the platform can provide to identify those places where they can start to invest and help turn the situation around and make a positive impact. And then on the flip side, another very different kind of use would be um, a watchdog organization, for example, or a campaigning organization that's interested in having a much more bird's eye view of the whole uh, sector, all of the, f all of the trade in soy. So it can look at 
across the the entire sector who's doing well and who's doing badly, and start to to, to you know identify those actors who could up their game more and reward those ones that are already doing quite a lot. Later in the year, I caught up to Michael Mathras, who works for a Swiss company called Zaluvida, which developed a product called Mutral. That's like neutral, but with a moo instead of a new. That kills off the bad bacteria in the stomachs of cows and other ruminants, which is what we call four-stomached beasts like cows, goats, and sheep. By killing off the bad bacteria, Mutral makes the animals healthier and slashes the methane in their burps by about 30%. It's basically a natural feed supplement uh, for the cows to help reduce the, their emissions, their methane emissions, by at least uh, 30%. I've been in this business for a while, and I was still shocked to see how much more powerful than carbon dioxide methane really is. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very little known fact. If you do like for like, so over a hundred year period, see if you compare CO2 to CH4, which is methane, uh, methane is 21 times more uh, powerful. When more powerful, that means uh, the global warming potential of methane is 21 times more powerful than CO2 over a hundred year period. Mm -hmm. However, uh, if you look at it from uh, the life uh, span of the methane gas, of the methane molecule, um, it's actually 84 times more powerful than CO2. I alluded to this at the start, and I'll do an entire episode just on methane, but it's worth taking a moment to reflect on what Michael is referring to, because he's touching on an issue that's a huge point of contention in the climate community. And climate science deniers like the Koch brothers and their trained monkeys at the Heartland Institute love to distort contentious issues to discredit the entire body of climate science. So let me give you a super simple summary of methane. First, we talk about a carbon footprint, but there are actually six major greenhouse gases, and each is a little different. Methane is one of those gases, and in the very short term of a few years, it traps about 100 times more heat than carbon dioxide does. But it also breaks down into carbon dioxide over a period of 10 to 20 years. What this means is that, over a period of 100 years, methane is only 25 times as bad as carbon dioxide. But over 20 years, it's more than 80 times as bad. Let me repeat that because it's a lot to swallow. Over a hundred years, methane traps 25 times as much heat as carbon dioxide does. But over 20 years, it traps more than 80 times as much heat. Now, scientists managed to simplify the mess, albeit imperfectly, by coming up with something called CO2E, which stands for carbon dioxide equivalent and acts as a standardized measurement of greenhouse gases. It works by first determining how many times worse than carbon dioxide a given greenhouse gas is over the next century, and using that as the multiplier. For example, because methane is 25 times worse than carbon dioxide over 100 years, its multiplier is 25. Here's the controversy. Rising temperatures will force our natural systems to release more and more methane. And if we warm the Earth more than 2 degrees Celsius, all of the climate models go crazy. No one really knows what happens after that, but it isn't good. So it makes no sense to, to talk about a gas that lasts 100 years uh, when we only have 16 years to uh, fix things. So that's why 
it's an even more important issue to uh, try to tackle methane in the next you know 16 years yeah that's something we get into a lot with with the whole issue of carbon neutrality because uh, if you're offsetting methane and emissions with a co2 reduction and the standard is based on the 100 year cycle you're really not offsetting because in the short term you're creating so much more absolutely no you're absolutely correct and uh, that's why it is important also to do a carbon offset like for like so it should be a methane offset if you are releasing uh, methane such as the gas companies or the, the, the big energy companies that do that. Mm -hmm. Going back to your, your company, how exactly does this, this product work, this Mutrol? The natural feed supplement is actually made up of two key natural ingredients. Uh, those are uh, garlic uh, extract, extracts from uh, garlic, and extract from orange peel. And uh, our very um, uh, talented uh, bioscientists, uh, biotech scientists are able to extract those specific compounds and make a powder. And that powder, then we basically put that powder into the feed of the cow and uh, then we just uh, give the feed to that cow. Mm -hmm. Quick note, there are other products that aim to reduce the methane from cows, including one called 3-nitro-oxypropanol or 3-NOP. Mutril is made from natural ingredients, but I can't really say which is better. Now, you're a vegetarian, right? Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a pescatarian, but okay. I only eat uh, you know, fish once, uh, once a week. Uh -huh. yeah. I mean, shouldn't we just get rid of cows entirely then? No, we don't condone you know, the, the fact that uh, you know, people uh, you know, eat meat uh, every day. That's, that's not what I'm here for, and that's not what I preach. What I know is that there is a big problem that... Uh, uh, that the livestock industry uh, poses and um, I or we have a solution to help reduce those emissions uh, from those cows. Then there was my interview with Bertrand Picard, the first man to fly around the world in a solar-powered airplane, the Solar Impulse 2, a machine that could theoretically fly forever without ever pausing to refuel. I ran into him in late May at the Innovate for Climate Summit in Barcelona, where he launched a new initiative designed to identify and fund 1,000 profitable climate change solutions by the end of 2018. It's called the World Alliance for Efficient Solutions, which is now created by the Solar Impulse Foundation. And the goal is to bring 1,000 profitable solutions for the environment by the end of 2018. Because what I've noticed is that on one side, you have trillions of dollars ready to be invested. People don't know where to invest. And on the other side, you have a lot of individuals, startups, universities, or big companies who have products, process, uh, systems, solutions, clean technologies that can help to protect the environment. They help to protect the environment, but if they were implemented, they would also create jobs, they would make profit, they would sustain growth. So. The goal now of the Solar Impulse Foundation is to bring these two groups of people together. So the Solar Impulse Foundation is like a fire, and in the pot, you have all the solutions, the investors, the media, and by bringing them together, it makes some steam, and the steam will go to the governments who need solutions to reach their environmental targets. We start with 1,000 solutions, in a year and a half, which is not too bad because the goal is to reach the people, uh, make an expertise of their solutions, 
we need to be sure they are reliable, they are credible, they are profitable. And then they come into the list of the 1,000 solutions. And we will bring these 1,000 solutions to the COP24, end of 2018. A quick interjection. The COP24 that he is referring to there is the 24th meeting of the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the formal name for the year-end climate talks that will take place in 2018 in Katowice, Poland, a former coal and steel center. Climate talks, by the way, continue year-round. We just wrapped up mid-year talks in Bonn, Germany, which is where this year's year-end talks are also taking place. Now, Back to the interview. Then we'll go for more thousand solutions. But let's start with this, because I think it's really important that the population and the investors know that there are really a lot of solutions. Usually, what do you hear? You hear that the solution is solar energy, wind energy, hydroelectricity, biomass, and maybe geothermy. And then people stop. They don't understand that the goal is not to produce more energy, even if it's clean. The goal is to reduce the waste of energy. The goal is to be energy efficient. It's to save energy. It's to store energy. This is where you will have probably uh, 995 of the 1,000 solutions because the rest is well known. Mm -hmm. So the focus is going to be energy efficiency or will there be other areas that you're looking into? Every solution that is profitable to protect the environment. Mm -hmm. If it's not profitable, if it needs subsidies, you have a lot of resistance of a lot of political parties. But if it is profitable, it will be a goal, of course, for the industry and for the economy, as well as for the environmentalists and the green parties. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You had talked earlier today about the importance of, of communicating the climate challenge, not as a, a threat, but as an opportunity. How did this epiphany come to you? How did you come to this conclusion? Originally, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a medical doctor. Mm -hmm. So I try to understand how people react. And if you tell to the population about huge problems with climate change, all the droughts, the floods, the tropical disease invading Europe, the rise of sea level and millions of climate refugees, what's the reaction of the population? They don't want to hear about it because it's too big. Mm. It's such a big disaster that a normal individual does not know how to participate to the fight against climate change. So they disconnect Mm -hmm. or they are Mm -hmm. depressed (laughs) or they refuse to hear about it. Mm -hmm. So let's change the paradigm. Stop to speak about the problem that depresses everybody and start to speak about the solutions Mm -hmm. that will give hope. Mm -hmm. It It will give optimism. Because people will say, wow, we can really do something, each one at his level. You can insulate your house. You can drive a hybrid car. Or if you're a world banker, you can invest in new startups or new companies who have solutions. Everybody finds its part mm-hmm. that makes him optimist and makes him really more uh, actor of mm-hmm. the future instead of victim of the situation. At that same event, I had a chance to speak with Andrew Mitchell, who runs the Global Canopy Program. We talked about the importance of forests, farms, and fields in meeting the climate challenge. Uh, People here don't really recognize that 
what's going on in forests and landscapes that are often miles away from where many of these people live uh, is causing emissions which are about uh, in total 26%. Forests are alone, the burning of rainforest, the burning of trees for clearance, for land, for agriculture, that's about 15 to 20%. Then you go to add in the agriculture, you get up to about 24%. That's smoke going into the sky. Well, that's only part of it. And then the second part is that if you stop that, it's about 33% of what we need to do to keep below two degrees. Just to summarize, changes in land use generate about 24 to 26% of all anthropogenic or man-caused greenhouse gas emissions going into the atmosphere. It's a number that changes every year because of droughts and fires and other things. But the key point is this. Healthy land systems can absorb more greenhouse gases than they emit. In fact, the forests, farms, and fields of the United States absorb about 15% of the country's industrial emissions. And we'll be doing a whole podcast just on that alone. If you take one thing away from this episode, it's this. If we ended deforestation right now, we'd be one-third of the way towards the reductions we need to keep global temperatures from rising 2 degrees Celsius, which is the point at which the climate models start to go haywire and all bets are off. Now that's a huge, that's one-third of the action that we could take to keep the Earth's temperature below two degrees can come from forests and landscape. So that's huge. Now you might think that the conversation here would be at least a third on that issue, but it's actually invisible. It's less than 1%. In fact, nobody really talks about it. It's very, very little, and that's wrong. So you get a tiny amount of the money going into that sector and a tiny amount of the conversation. Because we all talk about factories, we talk about cars, we talk about energy, not landscapes. And that's what we need to change. Just to clarify, I'm not against renewable energy and solar technology, and neither is Andrew. We need those technologies, and we need to reduce industrial emissions. But other media are beginning to cover that, while they're still giving short shrift to land use. And the thing is this, even if we reduced industrial emissions to zero, our forests, farms, fields, and water bodies, all of the ecosystems that keep us alive are now destabilized to such a degree that we now live on a managed planet. If you agree that these are important issues that should be covered in a way that a non-technical audience can understand, and if you like the way I'm trying to cover them, then you can help by giving me a good rating on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you access my show, or you can share Bionic Planet with friends, or the ultimate support, become a patron at bionic-planet.com. Because I depend on you to get these out, and I've set the patronage page so that you can help per episode but with a monthly cap. So if you think $5 per month is good for a five-episode month, you can pledge $1 per episode, but with a $5 cap. That way, if I don't manage to generate five episodes in a month, you're not paying for something you didn't get. And if I go nuts and deliver 20 episodes one month, you won't get whacked either. By the same token, you can offer $5 per episode, or 10 or 50 or whatever. I won't complain. 
And on that note, I'd like to welcome two new patrons, Nicola Church of London and a guy named Stefan who goes by the name Sustainability Doctor. He's been communicating with me since the day I started Bionic Planet early last year. Finally, as you may have noticed, I've changed things a bit this year. I'm aiming to mostly do interview-based episodes for now, but given the complexity of the material, I'll be interjecting occasionally, like I am here, to clarify certain concepts. It's a hybrid between a straight interview and a feature package, although I still think that in-depth, documentary-style features with multiple voices and some story structure are the best way to explain complex issues. Unfortunately, those take a lot of time to construct, more time than I have right now, and they really require a whole team to do right. Until I can afford that, I'm concentrating on generating these simpler, single-issue, single-guest podcasts. Picking up with Andrew, he said that we needed to get money flowing into forests, and we needed to do this by getting conversation going. I then asked him how we do that. Well, it is changing in that people are becoming much more aware because of the issue of the burning of rainforests and the destruction of agricultural land or by agriculture is getting much more attention than it used to get. Uh, I mean, I've been working on these issues for 40 years and uh, 20, 20 years ago, no one was talking about this. But the huge deforestation that occurred in the Amazon, of course, that, that's got more attention now because of the climate risk that it's causing. But the thing that's really happened just in the last five years is that people are realizing that what's driving all this is the food we eat. Mm -hmm. Things like palm oil, uh, soy, which goes into feeding uh, chickens and pigs, in, uh, particularly in Europe and China, uh, and things like paper and pulp, the, the beef industry and leather industry making our shoes. A lot of that leather is coming from Brazil. All of these things, cocoa and coffee, these sorts of commodities that we use every day are driving this problem. And the companies who are trading and producing and trading and transporting and selling us those commodities have wised up to the fact that they have a responsibility to deal with deforestation. And that's what's changed, is that we're getting much more attention on it now. We're seeing more attention on the supply chain side mm -hmm. from companies, but I still don't see a whole lot of focus on it here at this meeting, which is designed to funnel finance into climate-safe practices. It's, it mm -hmm. seems like most of the attention here is still focused on renewable energy and, and yeah. new technologies rather than supporting old technologies that do a very good mm. job of reducing emissions in forests. Is yeah. there, I mean, well, in funny enough, one of the oldest pieces of technology in climate is a tree. Mm. It's a really good carbon capture and storage mechanism mm. that soaks up about a billion tons of, of CO2 every year. Mm -hmm. uh, for free mm -hmm. uh, around the tropics. That's tropical forest. So it's, it's extremely valuable. But people kind of take that for granted. Then you get into, okay, well, how do we invest in landscapes and in agricultural reforms um, that would turn around the situation which is causing forests to burn? And that gets kind of tricky because you get situations where we don't know who owns the land. Land tenure is a major issue. So who owns the land? Uh, you get into issues of, there in many cases, like in palm oil, there are millions of people involved in the palm oil industry. Uh, many, many different families. Uh, and it's not like you're just going to a factory uh, uh, and turning it on and off. And so it's a more complicated environment. Yet, there are billions and billions of dollars that are flowing in these landscapes, often doing the wrong thing because we're producing cattle 
uh, and beef very inefficiently, uh, where we had a soy system that was causing deforestation. Palm oil has totally transformed the forests of Southeast Asia. And these are products that we use every day. I mean, here we're sitting in Barcelona in Europe during this conference. The European economic area is a massive market for these products. So the demand is coming from Europe and places like China and to an extent the US. So figuring out how we can make that demand to be a force for good rather than bad is what's going on now. And the, because it's taken some time to do that, it's been hard to get investment to flow. Of course, I focused heavily on the investment side, beginning with Noel Claire Lacan and Richard Frenopfel, who run impact investment group Alpha Source Advisors and see big opportunities for people who want to make money by helping the world better manage its forests, farms, and fields in the Anthropocene. Uh, impact investments are, are, can actually enhance returns and lower risk. So, uh, you know, we, we want to make sure it's clear that in addition to the impact are market rate returns. <clears throat> Just to add on that, one of the things that's really important to us is that we're in a space, we want to be in, impact space has always been, in our minds, a place that's very collaborative and very inclusive. Not everybody feels that same way. Some people want to think that they have special sauce that needs to be protected. We think there's plenty of room. And what we want to do is, is kind of prove out a model. You know, a year from now, when people see that there are non-concessionary returns in a fund that's focusing on something that people haven't really dipped their toe in that pool yet, that others will follow behind us and support the entire market and help us have air to breathe in the future and not be underwater. We'll get into your investment areas shortly, but can you tell us what ponds you're fishing in? You know, who, who are your investors and, and how do you pitch them? So uh, in, in terms of who we're pitching it, we're, we're, we're just building an ecosystem. So, and that's expanding you know, as we come to events like this. Um, so you know, the folks who have the same goal that we have are, you know, are, are the ones who are most receptive to the conversation. However, we also have investors who are, are not particularly impact focused, but they're just in it for the return. So you know, it's a, an ever expanding uh, target audience especially with uh, institutional investors, it's really about fitting into the mandate that they have. That might not have anything to do with impact, um, but it might have to do with a woman-run fund, which this happens to be. Or really whatever gets people to the table and gets the, the needle moving in the right direction is okay with us. And in terms of our pitch, uh, we have acknowledged that the forests, for example, in the DRC, are surrounded by communities that can't afford to protect them on their own. So we feel that if, if someone doesn't help them and we lose that forest, then we've lost the, the fight against climate change. So uh, our, our primary goal is to help those communities to become sustainable so they can protect their own forests so they don't need folks like us forever. We can give them that boost and uh, at the same time create all sorts of alternative livelihoods so that they don't have to also uh, invade their own forests um, to, to produce low-value commodities. And, and at the same time, we can be protecting the biodiversity uh, within those forests. What Noel was talking about is, is so right on, is that to the degree that we can come in and help an entire landscape, you know, that sits, let's say it sits around a Red Plus project, but sits alongside sustainable mining or sustainable timber or, you know, forest agriculture, to the degree that we can make those communities and make those businesses within those communities sustainable, 
right? That's the difference, right? I can sum up the difference right there is that no one has to come back a year later and put another million dollars in it. We can come in now and support businesses that are investable and that just need some capital to scale and some time uh, and some support maybe with, um, with technology that we can bring in to help them be more efficient, right? Ag tech, internet of things, technologies, because we, we've invested in disruptive technologies in the past because we think it's a huge part of impact investing. And uh, climate smart. And climate smart, Agriculture. Right? So to us, that's really the whole thing, right? Is that you make these communities, you make these businesses sustainable, and then there's no need for the philanthropic element after that. I also spoke with Genevieve Bennett, who conducted an analysis of environmental finance in Europe. I know the United States gets a bad rap these days, and with good reason. We've elected an imbecile who's in the process of gutting the Environmental Protection Agency, ostensibly to create jobs. I'll concede that Donald Trump's policies, for lack of a better word, might boost profits for some of the coal and cattle companies that support him, but they probably destroy more jobs than they create. That's because profits aren't jobs. In fact, profits are often the opposite of jobs. Companies save money by cutting corners, and that often means firing people like the 220,000 people who make up the $25 billion restoration economy in the United States. These are people who earn their money planting trees, restoring rivers, and turning soggy, unproductive farms into wetlands that filter water, purify air, and slow climate change. These jobs exist because companies and even government agencies that damage our environment are legally obligated to make us whole. Under the Endangered Species Act, for example, a local government that wants to build a road through sensitive habitat must first petition the Fish and Wildlife Service for permission to do so. If permission is granted, the entity still has to leave the habitat better than it found it. That's led to the creation of so-called conservation banks or mitigation banks, which are usually created by green entrepreneurs who identify marginal land and restore it to a stable state that performs ecosystem services like flood control or water purification. These mitigation bankers make money by selling credits to entities that get permission to break things. I really should do a whole series of podcasts on mitigation banking in the United States. It's a fascinating subject, and the banks have actually led to the creation of healthier, more contiguous ecosystems. But today, we're looking at Europe. So now you've got these, these three separate reports. One's on biodiversity, one's on water, one's on carbon. And there's a lot of detail in these, and I'm wondering if you could help us understand the essence of what you found in a way that people who are new to this stuff will understand it. And then I'd, I'd encourage listeners to explore them on their own or to check out the stories that we'll be rolling out on Ecosystem Marketplace. And I want to make it very clear to listeners that you're looking at finance, which I've always felt is the most important but underreported aspect of conservation because, you know, bad financial incentives are creating a lot of this mess and good financial incentives can help fix it. And in each of these reports, you're looking at payments for conservation and not just whether programs exist to create payments, but how much money is flowing through them, 
where it's coming from, what it achieves. And in the case that I think exemplifies this is the one that I opened with, Vitel. Uh, I've written about this myself, and I know a bit, but you had a case study that went into a lot of detail, and I'm wondering if you could kind of explain the essence of this Vitel program, how it worked, and what it achieved, and what lessons it gave us. Sure. So um, the Vitel project is probably one of the best known examples of these, these investments in natural infrastructure that we talk about in the reports. And it is a project that is located in France. Um, I, I should note, actually, that it's Vitel has, has since uh, become Nestle Waters. Um, but basically, back in the early 90s, um, Vitel, which is a, a mineral water bottler, was dealing with a lot of contamination of their groundwater. Ultimately, it, it turned out that that was coming um, from agriculture in the catchment. And the risk for the company was that um, they would no longer be able to label the water as, as natural mineral, mineral water. So what they did, and this was really innovative, was um, they actually uh, went to the farmers and said, you know, hey, essentially, if you will manage your lands in such a way that fertilizers and pesticides and, and herbicides are, are staying out of the, the groundwater, um, will pay you. I think these days they pay about 200 euro per hectare per year to farmers for doing things like, you know, reducing um, fertilizer application rates or, or changing the way that they're stocking livestock on the land. Um, and they're also helping farmers with things like um, buying new farm equipment. Uh, they're working with with municipalities as well to, to think about groundwater quality. But it, it was really sort of an interesting um, and, and pretty innovative idea in that I think traditionally the response to, to water quality issues or water supply issues is, is an engineering response, right? You know, what new filtration equipment do we need? Um, <laughs> what new pipes can we, we put in or, or things like that? And so here they were actually kind of trying to tackle the, the problem at its source. What I love about this program is that you can visually see it. And you had you had some nice mm. illustrations in there. I think it's very clear and it's easy to understand that the people who get the water are paying to make sure the water is clean. And it also helps to illustrate this concept of green infrastructure that you talk about a lot in the report. Do you have, you have a way of defining, when you talk about green infrastructure, I use that word a lot. And I think I know what it means, but I don't know but I actually have a, a clear definition of it. Do you have one? Can you? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about green infrastructure, we are we are talking about um, the natural systems that perform functions for us that we kind of normally associate with um, engineered infrastructure. So if you think about how a forest filters out pollution. Um, or how a wetland helps to recharge an aquifer, or a, a coastal wetland can help um, absorb storm surges. That's what we mean when we talk about green infrastructure. How are natural systems kind of performing these functions for us that we have traditionally, you know, really tried to pursue with with built solutions? And I do want to note also, it's it's not a question of green infrastructure versus gray infrastructure. I think there, um, you're probably much better off uh, looking at a combination of the two. You know, how can you use green infrastructure to help um, preserve the life of your reservoir or save you some money in infiltration? Then I caught up to Brian Schopp of Forest Trends and Brianna Luhan of EDF. They looked at existing efforts to slow deforestation in Indonesia and Brazil. 
and they showed how better coordination could make them more effective. Uh, Brazil and Indonesia in many ways are the most important tropical forest countries globally. They hold the largest area of tropical forest together. So the fate of the world's forests really depend to a large extent on what these two countries do. And just a In 2014, Brazil and Indonesia collectively accounted for 38% of tropical deforestation. Which is a huge portion. Yeah, so almost four-tenths of the whole world's deforestation were in those two countries. And as you mentioned, commodity agriculture is a huge force uh, for deforestation in each country. So because we wanted to look at what private sector companies were doing uh, related to addressing deforestation, these two countries also made sense because uh, beef and soy in Brazil are huge drivers of deforestation, and in Indonesia it's uh, palm oil and pulp and paper. Both countries have these national climate action plans, which again, technically they're called nationally determined contributions or NDCs. Does one of you want to explain what an NDC is? Sure. It's basically um, countries that were signed on to the Paris Agreement, known as parties, submitted these official climate action plans. So basically they are the country's intentions to combat climate change or address climate change, and they encapsulate different things, right? So we focus specifically on the portions of the NDCs, or nationally determined contributions, that touched on um, the land sector and um, the forestry sector. Mm-hmm. And it's a really wonky term, um, but it's just it's sort of part of the parlance of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and that was the term that was decided by all the global negotiators. Um, But it basically just means national commitments to act on climate change. Yeah, and what I find interesting about the Paris Agreement, just to reiterate this, is the NDCs are the core of that, because in the past, if you looked at the Kyoto Protocol, we had top-down, one-size-fits-all, global target, no way of getting there. Now we, with under the Paris Agreement, we've got global agreement on how to measure all the wonky stuff, and then we say, as far as what each country is going to do, voluntarily come up with an NDC. But then once you make an NDC, once you make that, it, it does become a binding commitment. And the binding portion of the agreement is that each country has to is required to submit um, official records of their emissions and to be transparent with what's happening. Um, in their own country in terms of emissions. Whether or not the actual reductions they've committed to are binding is sort of dependent on domestic legislation in each country. For this report, we took the most recent version of the NDCs submitted for Paris, but because this is a bottom-up world, we expect these to change in years ahead and hopefully become more ambitious. And another key thing that you guys pointed out is that 80% of the NDCs have something to do with deforestation, right? Right. So deforestation or the land use sector more broadly. Mm -hmm. Um, So we detailed throughout the report, I think there are several tables detailed to what specific portions we focused on in each NDC for each specific country. So that way it was uh, kind of easier to compare like the corporate commitments with specific portions of the NDC. For now, why don't we just do a quick comparison between the two NDCs that we're talking about. Brazil has committed what they've said is that by 2025, their emissions will be 37% lower than they were in 2005, and then they'll be 43% lower by 2030. Correct. Okay. Indonesia says that by 2020, their emissions will be below a business-as-usual scenario. We'll probably have to explain what that is, um, because emissions can still rise, but be be lower than what they would be. Yeah, so it's 26% by 2020, 29% by 2030, and then they added an extra 12% if they get sufficient funding from international donors and technical assistance, capacity building, that sort of thing. Right, right. Donuts, deodorant, buns, and burgers. They're killing us, and not just because of what they do to our bodies. No, it's because of what the soy, beef, and palm oil that they're made of and the paper they're packaged in 
due to the environment. More specifically, it's because of the way we get these commodities, by chopping or degrading forests, which is one reason these four commodities featured prominently in this year's shows. Here's Marco Albani, who runs an organization called Tropical Forest Alliance 2020. In 2010, the Consumer Good Forums passed a resolution that they would end deforestation in their supply chains for beef, soy, paper and pulp, and palm oil by 2020. Beef, soy, palm oil, and pulp and paper. There they are again, the big four commodities responsible for most of the world's deforestation because farmers around the world are chopping forests to grow them. So it's a pretty big deal when 400 companies line up behind a specific pledge to end that. But of course, that doesn't solve the problem. Just as the Kyoto Protocol showed us that government can't do this on its own, common sense tells us that the global profit-driven corporate sector isn't going to fix our problems on its own either, despite what free market fundamentalists like to believe. We need government, we need NGOs, we need indigenous groups, we need them all working together. So in 2012, the Consumer Goods Forum and the U.S. government launched Tropical Forest Alliance 2020, or TFA 2020, to get all of these sectors working towards the goal of changing the way we produce the big four deforestation commodities, so that by the year 2020, we no longer chop forests to do so. And since then it has grown. We have now over 100 partners. It's a multi-stakeholder alliance, multi-stakeholder platform. It does have government, both uh, con uh, consumer governments and tropical forest governments. It has uh, business, both producers, all the way up to uh, companies that uh, run plantations or the first buyers from, from farmers, to uh, processors, co uh, consumer packaged good companies, and then retailers, and has civil society. Civil society, indigenous people organizations, uh, environmental NGOs, uh, labor, and so on. So, where are we now? You've got the Consumer Goods Forum representing business. And you've got Tropical Forest Alliance 2020, or TFA 2020, representing all of these diverse interests. Then, in 2014, as climate negotiators are gearing up for the Lima climate talks, things get serious. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon holds a massive rally in New York, designed to turbocharge TFA 2020's mission. The result? is something called the New York Declaration on Forests, which is a pledge to cut the global rate of deforestation in half by 2020 and to end deforestation by 2030 while restoring hundreds of millions of acres of degraded land. The pledge is endorsed by 36 national governments, 20 subnational governments, meaning states and cities, 15 indigenous organizations, 53 environmental NGOs, and 52 multinational corporations. And the list of companies is interesting. It includes traditional good actors like Dannon, Unilever, and Kellogg's, but it also includes companies with a reputation for doing the wrong thing, like Asia Pulp and Paper, a longtime environmental pariah 
once known for grinding pristine forest into pulp. Some of you may, may already know that in the last five years, we've been working really hard to turn our story around, especially uh, to specifically about uh, you know removing uh, deforestation across our supply chain. That's Dewey Bramono, Asia Pulp and Papers Director of Sustainability and Stakeholder Engagement. The New York Declaration on Forests is a huge deal because you've got all these companies publicly committing to tackle deforestation. And the declaration isn't just a simple statement, but it's actually 10 specific goals that feed on and reinforce each other. The challenge is holding these companies to their word. Now we come to 2015. You've got these two global networks and this very public commitment. How do you turn this into action? In part, by getting everyone on the same page. So the governments of the UK and Norway ramped up funding for TFA 2020, and the World Economic Forum essentially adopted it, giving it a place to live in Switzerland. That same year, the organization that I work for, Forest Trends, launched the Supply Change Initiative, that's supply-change.org, to track not just corporate commitments, but the progress that companies report towards achieving their commitments. Now we come to last year, 2016. You've got all of these commitments and all of this transparency, and TFA 2020 needs to pull it all together so that we can see how far we are from the goal. They asked a dozen leading NGOs to help out, and they put a research-oriented group called Climate Focus in charge. Then, at last year's climate talks in Marrakesh, they published two reports. One focused on progress towards all 10 of the goals outlined in the New York Declaration on Forests, and one focused exclusively on goal number two, which is the one that says that by 2020, we will no longer be chopping forests to produce the big four deforestation commodities. And the assessment was actually uh, a bit sobering. Specifically, it's a mixed bag. Using supply chain data on almost 700 companies, they found less than half of the companies that had made commitments were actually disclosing progress. Although those companies that did report progress were usually on track to meet their goals. They also found huge variance from company to company, meaning some great success stories, some shining examples, and a lot of lessons learned. There is a forestdeclarations.org. The report is still there. There will be coming an update soon uh, for what's happened in the last year, but hasn't changed very much. And the story is one that a lot of progress has been made. And frankly, when people made these commitments almost 10 years ago, they really didn't know what that meant and what, how to operationally get there. Uh, and a lot has been done to actually move ahead in this. And so... Companies have made commitments, they have created policies, they're implementing these policies and so on. At the same time, there's still a lot that needs to be done, and uh, 2020 is coming up. It's crunch time, and we need to very quickly harvest the lessons of the last eight years to see what works and what doesn't. Then we need to scale up what works and do it fast. So Tropical Forest Alliance 2020 called in climate focus again. Remember there, the research-oriented NGO that led the creation of the first two assessments? We started with the New York Declaration Progress Assessment on Goal 2, which was released in November 2016. 
That's Charlotte Streck, who runs Climate Focus. Then we had a series of workshops, consultations, consultations elect in electronic form, in person. We met first with a number of, of a multi-stakeholder group in Berlin in December 16. Then we went into a process, a process of analysis. We had a lot of uh, individual... You get the picture. They didn't just pull this out of thin air, but instead they talked to more than 250 organizations put their findings out for review, adjusted them, and finally presented them in New York. In Brazil and in Ghana. All this is important. It is a result of a collaboration. And as it is, it's, it will never make 100% everybody happy, but it is the agreement among the greatest you know, number of stakeholders what needs to happen. One of my favorite episodes came late in the year when I spoke with Mark Buckley, who is the vice president in charge of environmental affairs for office supplies giant Staples, and Dana Smith, who runs the Dogwood Alliance. The Dogwood Alliance is an environmental NGO based in the southeastern United States, a region that produces 12% of the world's wood, pulp, and paper. Staples is a massive stationery and office supply chain based up in the northern part of the country in Massachusetts, and it buys reams and reams of paper from suppliers like Georgia Pacific and International Paper, who in turn buy paper made from trees taken from forests across the very region that Dogwood is trying to protect. Over the years, the two organizations have forged an unusual and incredibly effective alliance to save forests. So you guys have pledged that 100% of your paper products will either be recycled or certified uh, under the FSC, uh, but you've found that there's a shortage of FSC certified paper. So you started buying offsets with the idea of A, offsetting your industrial emissions and reducing your own carbon footprint, but also paying landowners to become certified or to basically increase your own supplies of certified paper. Is that an accurate summary? Yeah, I think the um, the intent really was for us to see if there was an opportunity for us to create a model that would encourage FSC certification for, for smallholders in the South and landowners in the South. We looked at the carbon markets as a potential vehicle to, to do both. We thought that improving land management practices under FSC would also improve carbon stocks in forests. And, and as a result, that net carbon benefit, you know, would be good for obviously um, offsetting impacts associated with climate change, but also improve the availability of FSC certified fiber in an area that we source a lot of our paper and wood products from. What I wanted to try to do was kind of go back to the beginning a bit and talk about the genesis, because there's a really interesting backstory on how this relationship came about. And if I could briefly go back to the early 1990s, because that's where a lot of these things were beginning. You had the, uh, the Earth Summit in Rio. Everybody was talking about the environment. A few years before that, you had the Amazon burning that was always in the news. Uh, the Forest Stewardship Council was created in 19... 1993, and then we get to 1996, which was a pivotal year in this. Uh, Staples, that was the year that your sales topped $3 billion. You became a member of the Fortune 500, and then that same year, the Dogwood Alliance and this other group called the Forestland Group were both formed. Okay. Yeah, I had never put all of that together, so that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to see, see to see that the convergence. Now, how did the Dogwood Alliance? How did this? How did you guys come into existence? Yeah, so around 1996, 
um, people across the region, from local community groups to environmental organizations, hunters, even solid wood users, started to see a massive uptake in the amount of wood coming from southern forests, uh, a lot more clear-cutting, a lot more conversion of natural forests to plantations that sort of reached a height uh, in the mid-1990s. And people across the region were looking around and wondering what was going on. And a lot of concern about the impacts of the acceleration of logging across the south on communities, on the forest and ecosystem health, and also on the, the economy of the South. And what was happening at that time was a massive increase in paper production in the southeastern U.S. And so um, Dogwood was formed, uh, was a grassroots organization that was formed uh, to sort of elevate the voice of concern of people across the region and begin to try to figure out how to address that problem. Mm-hmm. Our first campaigns were really focused on getting government to do studies of the impacts of this expansion in the industry, and ultimately our goal was to get you know some sort of government policy in place to protect our communities and our forests. I was really shocked to see how much paper is produced in the in the southeast. When I think of deforestation, I tend to think of the Amazon and the developing countries. And there was something I found in your report, kind of jumping forward a bit here, but there, you, you said that... Um, I'll just read from it here. While FSC-certified forests in the U.S. grew from 9 million to 23 million acres between 2003 and 2007, only 16% of this was in the south, just under 4 million acres or 2% of southern forests. Why, why is that so low in the south still to this day? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a you know, question we're all grappling with. Um, I think, though, that as Mark Uh, suggested earlier, you know, look, in the southeastern U.S., 90% of the land is privately owned. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of that is in the hands of very small owners. So it's a very complex supply chain, uh, number one. Mm -hmm. But number two, uh, you know, in order to become certified, there's a cost involved in that. And there's not always an adequate return in terms of, you know, the benefit that the landowner would get from harvesting and getting certified. So that was really the impetus behind this project was to see if we couldn't fill that gap, to see if we couldn't create the right kind of financial incentive using carbon markets to both cover the cost of certification, but also to actually create more revenue for landowners for leaving more trees in in the woods during a harvest and doing more light touch harvesting because if you're a landowner uh, and you're leaving trees in the woods right now, you're leaving money behind in the ground. Mm -hmm. So the carbon project was an effort to create more financial market incentive for landowners to actually become FSC certified. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it is interesting to see the costs involved in a, getting certified under FSC, and then the whole carbon accounting process is also really expensive, and we'll get to that in a bit. Mark, you were working with Staples back then, but you weren't on the environmental side? I mean, Yeah, so, I, I, I've, so I've been with, with Staples since 1990, so nearly 28 years. And so for the first 12 years, I headed up our facilities and procurement groups here at Staples. But I have a background in biology and environmental science, and this is a dream job for me to move into this role, stay with a company that I love. Uh, 15 years ago, an opportunity to, to, 
to take this role on. The galvanizing moment for Staples, certainly around our relationship directly to Forrest, you know, came as a result of um, engagement and campaign, you know, that Dogwood had against uh, Staples back in, you know, 2001, 2002. And, um, you know, I think to our credit, you know, as a company, you know, initially we were a little bit taken back. We weren't quite sure what this was all about. And, and then, uh, you know, I met with uh, Dana and others and started to develop a better understanding of the impacts of our supply chain and, and I think really started to understand, you know, at that time there were a couple of other certification schemes that were starting to gain steam but also really understood a bit more about um, the credibility and the rigor associated with Forest Stewardship Council certification. And it was really at that point in time that, you know, we, we committed to try to uh, bring more certified you know, fiber into our supply chain and really understand, you know, the dynamics of that. And, and Dana, you know, has been a really wonderful partner uh, in Dogwood, you know, since those days because she's, you know, intimately connected to the, you know, to the landowner base in the south and, and understands the dynamics certainly better than we did. So it was, a, it was a really great collaborative effort to really start developing that understanding, at least initially. This is before, the, obviously, before this project took off, and that really helped us build the first paper procurement policy in the industry in 2002 and and at that point in time you know committed us to start to move toward a more more certified fiber base and i would say from our perspective our first sort of effort at trying to address the issues in the south was focused on getting the government to do assessments and trying to get some government policy in place and we were very successful at getting a lot of state studies and even uh, were instrumental in leveraging the first ever federal study on forest sustainability across the South, which was the Southern Forest Resource Assessment, published in 19, or maybe I think it was 2000. Um, and even though all these studies were sort of coming out saying, you know, how much forest acres had been lost to plantations, how much logging was going on, what the growth to removal ratios looked like on industrial lands, um, and, and painted a pretty, you know, clear picture that there were some real sustainability issues in the U.S. South. The government was not really willing to take that to the next level and uh, adopt meaningful policy. Uh, and we recognized what a political uphill battle we were facing in the world's largest wood-producing region to get regulation, especially on private lands. So we took a step back and we said, well, at the time, you know, the, there had been campaigns that had been run that had focused on the Home Depot, getting them to make commitments to stop purchasing from old-growth forests in Canada. And we thought, well, maybe we could take that kind of approach. Let's look at what the customer base looks like on the part of the big paper companies um, and see if there are companies out there that we think we could push to become leaders in the marketplace uh, on southern forest issues. And uh, Staples emerged. You know, I have to give Mark a lot of credit, too, here, because you know, we had over 600 protests out in front of Staples stores over the course of just a couple of years. And, uh, you know, what we saw in Staples was real leadership. You know, at first, yes, there was some, you know, I think confusion about, like, why are you targeting us? We don't really log for us. And also a little pushback. But over the course of our relationship, we really saw a company who 
started to really hear the concerns that we were raising and really started to try to figure out what a solution could look like for them and for us. And over the course of the year, since Staples has adopted the policy and we ended the campaign and we gave them public support, Staples has been one of the most important allies in this work to change the way that forests are managed in the southeastern U.S. in terms of in the corporate sector. Um, and Mark, in particular, has been a real visionary and was really sort of the person who proposed this idea of maybe we start to work to see how we can leverage ecosystem markets as a way to incentivize private landowners to uh, practice more conservation forestry in the South. While we're talking about the Carolinas and deforestation, I wanted to share something with you. Something tragic, but informative. After Europeans arrived in the New World in 1492, the forests of both North and South America experienced a massive revival, and the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere plummeted. Why? because of guns, germs, and steel, as Jared Diamond put it in his book of that same name. More specifically, because Europeans killed Native Americans by the millions through a combination of slaughter and diseases like smallpox, against which the Native population had no immunity. I actually learned about the impact on forests in an audiobook called 1493, Uncovering the New World Columbus Created by Charles C. Mann, which I got through audible.com. Man has another book, too, called 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus. I mentioned at the start of today's show that I joined the Audible.com affiliates program, which means you can get a free audiobook download and support me at the same time with a free 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's bionicplanet as a single word, with no dots, dashes, or spaces. Once again, audibletrial.com forward slash Bionic Planet. If that's not your bag, you can also support Bionic Planet directly by giving me a good five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you subscribe, or by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. I've set the patronage page up so that you can support me per episode, but with a monthly cap. So if you think $5 per month is good for a five-episode month, you can pledge $1 per episode, but with a $5 monthly cap. That way, if I don't manage to generate five episodes in a month, you're not paying for something you didn't get. And if I go nuts and deliver 20 episodes one month, you won't get whacked either. By the same token, you can offer $5 per episode or 10 or 50 I won't complain. Finally, we closed out with a history of the Biocarbon Fund and the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility two financing mechanisms set up through the World Bank. One of the people I spoke to was Ellie Baruti, who oversees both funds. Before jumping into my conversation with Ellie, let me take you back to 2004. The Kyoto Protocol was set to begin in 2005, and it was an agreement within the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Its main financing vehicle was something called the Clean Development Mechanism, or CDM which made it possible for companies in rich countries to reduce their carbon footprints 
by paying for wind farms or solar energy projects in poor countries. CDM projects could also generate offsets by restoring forests, which absorb massive amounts of carbon dioxide. But the issue of using forests to offset industrial emissions was a contentious one. So offsets generated through afforestation, reforestation, which is the technical term for planting or restoring forests, would expire after a few years. As a result, very few companies were buying them. But even beyond forest offsets, the CDM was something completely new, and countries asked the World Bank to help them test it so that they could better understand what works and what doesn't. In 2004, a number of governments asked the bank, not just for land use, but all sectors, energy, transport. You know, this is a new area. It's a high-risk area. We don't know how these, how these mechanisms work. Can you help us pilot? And so basically, the World Bank set up a whole number of carbon finance um, trust funds that help to address the different sectors. And the one that we set up to work on land use was the biocarbon fund. And it was really done to help developing countries. So we looked very much at the clean development mechanism at the Kyoto Protocol. So those were the first, if you like, rules in the international sphere that we ever had to work with. But in the land use negotiations, we were very limited by what we could do. And the rules under the clean development mechanism only allowed for reforestation and afforestation. So we ended up with a fund that really looked at addressing a very specific piece of land use rehabilitation, if you like. I should point out that the Kyoto Protocol wasn't the only game in town. Environmental NGOs and green companies had been experimenting with land use offsets since the late 1980s. And by 2004, the science of carbon accounting was pretty solid. The problem then, as now, was something called leakage, which is what happens if you save a patch of forest in one part of a country, but then the person you stop goes down the road and chops a different part of the forest. There are plenty of solutions to that, and it often depends on who is chopping the forest. If the deforestation is coming from subsistence farming, moving into the forest, and you reduce it by helping them manage their land more sustainably, then there is no leakage because they don't go chopping someplace else. But if the deforestation is coming from giant palm oil companies, then the only way to really deal with leakage is to make sure you're accounting for all emissions from a country's forests, farms, and fields. That's something that no developing country was able to do back in 2004. And the Biocarbon Fund's early investments focused by necessity on isolated projects because they were designed to test new methods. They were small. Um, on average, um, we had something like five to 20,000 hectares of reforestation per project. I mean, I think that's probably the scale that we managed. And across a portfolio of activities, it still didn't add up to a huge amount. But it was, it was extremely valuable in helping us understand a few things. How you can generate an asset from this kind of work. So how do you get a ton of CO2? How do you translate the work you're doing on the ground into a ton of CO2? 
what makes these projects function, what hinders them. And there we also learned that you can't really address climate only through reforestation. Reforestation alone doesn't work because forests are usually being chopped for a reason. Sometimes because a company wants to graze cattle there so that you and I can have cheap hamburgers. Sometimes because subsistence farmers are desperate for charcoal. Planting trees doesn't fix any of that. And it became clear that more greenhouse gases are released when a living forest is killed than when trees are planted someplace else. Also, forests aren't usually killed overnight. They're usually degraded first. As a result, support began to grow for using carbon finance to avoid deforestation, to save endangered forests rather than just planting new ones, as well as to support climate-safe agriculture. And our projects were asking us, please help us. We've got these standing trees, can we not incorporate them? We've got these agriculture areas, can we not incorporate them? Then, at year-end climate talks in Montreal in 2005, Papua New Guinea wrangled avoided deforestation back onto the agenda, but with a new name, Reducing Emissions from Deforestation, or R-E-D, RED. The focus wasn't just planting trees, but actively slowing deforestation. By 2006, negotiators agreed to explore options for incorporating degradation, often called the second D, which is harder to measure. So red became red, but it went from R-E-D to R-E-D-D. And then climate-safe agriculture got woven into the mix, and that became the plus in Red Plus. At the time, however, the only experimentation on Red Plus was happening in voluntary markets, which focused on site-specific projects. To establish rules for developing Red Plus under the United Nations, countries needed to test it at a larger scale. We were asked, can we start thinking about this? And obviously it wasn't just us. In parallel, the forest countries were concerned. And you mentioned they brought this up right in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And basically, uh, collectively, uh, the, the world recognized that deforestation was a significant issue and something needed to be done. And in the same vein, the bank set up the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility to work on piloting what it would mean. Um, I think we were different to the VCS and the CDM because we went for a much larger scale. So one of the things we learned was if we stay doing things at a small scale, it won't have an impact on climate. And it won't have the same impact if we do it well on communities and livelihoods. And we really need to make a difference to climate, but in an environmentally and socially friendly way. So that meant we recognized the need for scale. And a lot of people recognized it at the same time. So. I think one of the difficulties for a lot of project developers were understanding, you know, the shift in mindset from project to subnational or national. And we haven't gone to national yet, Steve. We're really mainly in the subnational, and that's challenging enough because the scale is still pretty large. 
but yeah. we can touch on that separately. But so I think that took us into a different category of type of work, which meant that there was nothing around us that we could fit into. So that meant, how do you do things differently? And we really sat down and thought, well, we can't do it on our own. It's never going to work. The scale is too big. The issues are contentious. We're being accused of things because people just don't really know what's happening. So let's make sure that we have this very open platform and have the discussions. As with the Biocarbon Fund, the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility, or FCPF, would be a fund that puts money into forest carbon initiatives. Also like the Biocarbon Fund, the FCPF would get its money from countries and development banks, and it would pay money out based on how much the projects they invested in reduced greenhouse gases. Unlike the Biocarbon Fund, however, the FCPF would invest in initiatives testing Red Plus. But that still left huge swaths of the rural economy outside the testing zone. And it also didn't address the needs of companies looking to purchase sustainably harvested commodities. And then more recently, we did set up one more fund, which is the Initiative for Sustainable Forest Landscapes. And it's part of the Biocarbon Fund family. But there we're looking at how do you bring in land areas that aren't classified as forests. So what do you do with agriculture areas? What do you do with wetlands? What do you do with grasslands? Can you do something that's a little bit more comprehensive? You know, it's, it's interesting uh, for me to see the evolution of the financing streams. And I'm not sure the degree to which it's an evolution of my understanding or, or it's an evolution of the, the streams themselves. But when you first announced the ISFL, that was in Warsaw, at the Climate Talks was the first I heard of that, and that was where the money for the actual payments for performance would eventually be coming from the governments of, I think it was UK and Norway, uh, and then maybe, and I think Germany had some some in there as well, I don't remember, but it was government-to-government government, uh, payments based on the em- emission reduction, based on whether they managed to slow deforestation and relative to the baseline enough that the emissions would be reduced. But then when, when the private sector started talking about their involvement, it was companies like Unilever coming in with offtake agreements. And they were saying, okay, if you guys can actually implement sustainable agriculture programs, we will come in and we will guarantee to purchase from this area. Was that the first time that was done or was that just the first time I noticed it? How And, and how do how do these big supply chain drivers start to weave into all of the carbon finance that you that you guys okay. are working with. To answer that question, I have to go back a little bit in time also. Okay. So when we uh, set up the original biocarbon fund, we had a mix of buyers. We had government buyers and we had a number of private sector companies that were buyers. So basically our involvement with the private sector was we deliver to them tons of CO2. When we started thinking about the new funds, the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility and the ISFL, we wanted to keep the private sector engaged with us. And so we basically set out to have a series of conversations to understand, you know, what would it mean to keep the private sector on board in in the funds as they evolve? And any um, idea of the uh, private sector coming in as buyers of tons of CO2 was quickly 
we learned quickly this wasn't going to happen because at the time we were thinking of the initiative for sustainable forest landscapes the carbon market the bottom was taken out of it and nobody knew where the demand signals were going to come from that's ellie baruti closing out this edition and this season of bionic plant if this is your first time listening then i hope i've sparked your curiosity enough for you to go back and listen to the episodes in their entirety If you like what you hear and want to hear more, then you can give me a good review through whichever service you use to reach us. Or you can become a patron at bionic-planet.com, where you can support me for as little as $1 per month. That's all for this year, but I've got a backlog of good material from this year's Climate Talks, and I've been editing it, so I'll be able to hit the ground running in 2018. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.